Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. In the business world today, Microsoft is in talks to buy Discord for more than $10 billion. We have a link to it in the show notes, but Discord uses Elixir for the back end. Uh, so that's pretty interesting for us, right? A lot of Elixir companies or Elixir is being used in companies are, are being valued for a lot of money. <laughs> that's pretty cool. An additional quote said that it was probably more likely that they'd go public instead of taking the offer. So something to keep in mind. But pretty interesting. Discord, worth a lot of money and uses Elixir. What I think is awesome about that is just that you can use Elixir to solve hard problems, problems that are worth a lot of money to be solved. <laughs> I think it's interesting. I'm not a fan of like a consolidation. Like, you know, you have Teams and Slack and Discord and in terms of like business or community chat applications. I'm hoping there's not a consolidation in there yet. So we'll just see what happens with that. Yeah. Yeah. What's up with that? That reminds me, yeah, Slack was bought by Salesforce. So I don't know. I, I mean, congrats to the team for making a lot of value, but uh, I wish for things not to be as consolidated. Next up, the EEF, which is the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation, held their voting for board members. They posted an article with had the results for the elections, and I believe the people are appointed for three years. So it's a significant commitment to the members to step up and, and be part of that. I just want to relay a little bit of the results. They said, we see this larger involvement as a statement that the community believes the foundation can make a difference within the community. And the four winners are Miriam Pena, who has served previously, Pierre Stritzinger, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. I apologize. Sophie De Benedetto and Brian Paxton. We mentioned previously that Jose Valim was stepping down as, on his role at the board to focus more on the working group around machine learning. And his place is going to be filled by Maxim Fedorov. Excited to see the involvement of the community and a lot of the excitement around that. So looking forward to them and congrats. Oh, and, and if you're interested in how to participate in this and maybe in a, in a future election, can become a member of the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation. There's a basic membership that's free. That doesn't allow you to cast votes, but there is an annual supporting membership for $100, $100 US dollars, and that's a one-year recurring fee. That one uh, allows you to to cast votes. And maybe get a erlf.org email address if, in case you're looking for a, <laughs> a cool email. And there's, there's other levels uh, beyond that, but I uh, encourage you to check out members.erlf.org slash join-us uh, to find, uh, find that info on how to join the ERLF. Next up, the Ash admin got its first beta release. Back on episode 27, we talked a little bit with Zach Daniel, the creator of the Ash framework. So go back and give that a listen if you're interested in what it is they're doing. And if you're on Twitter, you'll see that Jose Valim has started teasing something new. So he did a, a big teasing kind of lead up to the release of NX. And he's posted a graphic that looks very NX related. And I would kind of describe it as a numbat reading a book. It's a cute little graphic, though. We don't yet know what that represents, but it's probably not as significant as a whole release of like NX was. But uh, something fun to watch for. And we will certainly let you know more about that when we learn ourselves. Uh, speaking of teasing... I came across a Chris McCord tweet that is teasing a big PR coming into Phoenix soon. I don't know what that is, but here we go again. <laughs> more, te more teases. 
So be on the lookout for some Phoenix news, maybe. We'll see. Uh, also the news, Elixir's popularity as measured by GitHub's PRs comes into the top 20 languages. That's exciting. I feel like that's a good metric. You know, that's, that's showing actual activity. Too bad it's only on the GitHub platform because that excludes, you know, and anything that's outside of that. But for that platform, I think GitHub is really popular. So that's, uh, that's going to be a good measure, I think. We come in under, let's see, where was it? We come in at number 19, right? Which is right under Objective-C, which is number, number 18. And if that, that's, a, that's a pretty good one. You know, that's, that's a good place to be. All the languages above this make sense to me. <laughs> There's the Tyobi Index, which we've talked about before. Those rankings don't quite make sense to me. This one makes sense to me. So this, this feels like a good one to listen to. Uh, so congrats to the Elixir community. We're getting up there, I think. And following on from that, another measure of Elixir's adoption is kind of looking at Heroku's build pack list page, where they list their most popular build packs. You'll see that Elixir's build pack is on the first page of the most popular ones, which means that people are actually deploying Elixir applications to Heroku. That's another measure of actual activity. And that's one of those you just kind of have to infer what's going on behind the scenes because Heroku's not saying, hey, this is how many applications are being deployed. So he's kind of looking at these kinds of signals. But it's a really kind of a, a fun one just to be aware of that, yes, there are people using it, they're trying it out, and they are deploying applications. Yeah. Hat tip to Devin Estes for pointing that out. Yes. There's a new proposal. And again, I'll highlight the word proposal. This may not be accepted. We'll see where it goes. Uh, there's a new proposal to add syntax for specifying steps for ranges. I'm still sorting out details there, but at the present moment, it looks like you can specify a range like one dot dot ten, right? And that would be a range. And if you were to enumerate through that, you'd get one, two, three, four, five, all the way up to ten. The proposal is for adding a, a syntax for specifying steps in that range. So you can do one dot dot ten slash slash two, and that would specify the step of two. So if you were to enumerate through that, you'd get two, four, six, eight, and ten. I don't know how useful that'll be for my everyday life, but that seems like a pretty cool thing. Uh, and again, uh, just remind you, that's totally a proposal. All that's up in the air, but an interesting development. So we'll see where that goes. I can tell Jose is thinking forward to the advent of code coming up because that's where I can see this being applied. <laughs> um, in other news, it looks like there's a SQLite adapter coming to Ecto. I think there was one before, maybe it kind of fell out of being maintained. Looks like it's now being maintained. It's been updated. It's ready to go. And it looks like they are beginning their work on adding a dash dash database SQLite 3 option to Phoenix to make this usable from the generated nixphoenix.new command. So interesting stuff. I know that's a cool database if you're just playing around or you have something tiny and you don't want to go full blown, you know, into Postgres. Yeah, we were talking about that before the show and David was pointing out like that's a good option for nerves. And I totally agree with that one where you're having very small, you're not even dealing with parallel access to the database. So it's not really like a shared database and it's super lightweight. And then I was also thinking when you're going through like a brand new setup and you just kind of demo the technology to someone, if they have to set up a Postgres database, it's just an extra hurdle that they have to clear to just to play with the technology. So being able to just have a demo app, be able to go with SQLite 3, that might be a, something that could help just kind of grease the wheels so people can play with Elixir and Phoenix a whole lot faster. Yeah, it says something that Rails is 
default database is SQLite because of the dependency issue. Not suggesting that Phoenix should make the same choice, but but it is easier, I think, to get up and running locally without having to worry about other stuff on your system. And that's it for the news. Today, we are joined by our special guest, Murnal Wadwa. So, Murnal, thank you for coming and welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Murnal has been involved with the creation and running of Occam Framework. So this is an interesting open source thing. I've, I've seen mention of it multiple times in the Elixir community, and it's Elixir-based. I had to have you come on and kind of help us understand where this fits in and, and how we can leverage this and in, in what kind of problems we can solve. Before we jump into all of that, could you maybe tell us a little bit more about yourself, like where you live and what kind of work you're doing? Yeah, sure. So my name is Mrinal Wadwa. I live in Oakland, California. I'm currently CTO at Occam, but I've been developing systems, uh, production systems in uh, Erlang for about 15 or so years and Elixir since around 2014. And for about the past eight or so years, I've been involved in designing systems that sense and control city infrastructure, industrial machines, essentially systems that automate physical things around us to improve the way we live and work. Very cool. I thought it was really interesting just learning that you've been working with the Erlang ecosystem for so long. Yeah, it's been it's been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed. I think I discovered the very first project was an XMPP based chat system back in two thousand five, two thousand six, where I first started sort of uh, digging into Erlang and fell in love. Uh, found Joe's book, and that was really the only resource back then to understand what the language and the runtime was capable of doing. Uh, but since then, it's been super exciting to see the community grow. Elixir was obviously a major boost and brought in a lot of new people. It's been very exciting building systems with uh, with Beam. I am curious how your opinion, coming from the Erlang background, coming to and seeing Elixir code, like how did you feel about Elixir code? Like as, you know, just like, oh, this is completely unnecessary. Or like, oh, I really like some of the things it's bringing. Like what was that experience like? You know, like everyone, you're a little bit resistant to ch- resistant to change in the beginning. So in the beginning, I didn't pay too much attention uh, for maybe about a, a year or so after hearing about um, Elixir. I didn't quite dig in, and I was very comfortable. We were already working on an Erlang system back then, and um, I was very comfortable in that world. But as I started digging in, I, I always loved the simplicity and expressivity of Ruby, and I started seeing a lot of that in um, in Elixir. The you know the the ability to to do macros and meta program was really attractive. I also noticed that a lot of API conventions and hiding some of the internals of Erlangy message send, sending started to happen with Elixir, where you know you, you just had function calls which internally were actually sending messages. But before Elixir, it was a lot of it was just exposed to the users, right? We weren't in the Erlang ecosystem. We weren't very good with APIs. I think the Elixir community brought that. So yeah, I, I really enjoyed the transition into Elixir. And every now and then I still go back to Erlang, but now my language of choice on the Beam is Elixir. Thanks for sharing that. So I'm really excited to jump into this topic about Occam and what it is, because I know it plays in the IoT space. You're talking about how you've been using Erlang to create systems that interact with the physical world. And I think that's an exciting space. And it's a space, you know, mostly right now, Elixir spends a lot of time playing in the web space. That's kind of where it's launched and, and got started. 
And now Jose has announced Project NX, and that's launching, which pushes Elixir more further into the machine learning space, which is a completely different kind of arena. Now, with what you're doing here, that, that's another different kind of direction things can go. So maybe you can give us a brief overview of what Occam is and what problem this is helping solve. Occam is we're an open source project and an open source company around that project. And we're building a collection of programming libraries and infrastructure for secure and private communication in IoT edge-like systems. Uh, so systems that touch the physical world. Elixir and Erlang, I feel, are really natural fit for solving several problems in that world. You know, there are things like the actor model itself, it lends really nicely to being to modeling uh, physical things, right? You have, let's say, 100,000 devices in the physical world. I need to be able to interact with them in real time. Being able to spawn 100,000 processes in my VM is just a naturally simple way of thinking about these physical systems. In fact, Occam's my second time building an IoT-like system with an Erlang Elixir background and the la- uh, our backend. And uh, the last time I did it also, it was just, it, it fits really nicely with that domain of modeling physical actors uh, or physical devices inside a virtual machine and then just simply sending messages to them. And you naturally get a queue for each of the actors. Uh, so you can, you can get, uh, you know, collect messages. Uh, if a device is offline, collect messages and then later transmit them to the device, et cetera. So all of these things are incredibly nice about uh, the Beam um, as a backend for physical connected things. At Occam specifically, we're focused on the security, trust, and privacy problems in connected systems. And that's a little bit based on my experience of having built these previous systems where you know we were deploying uh, sensing infrastructure on city streets to sense traffic flow, parking, sewer and storm drain system sensing to, to detect floods and do flood warning, control of streetlights, et cetera. And these systems, the physical devices spread out in the world and critical city emergency response infrastructure was depending on those physical uh, devices. So uh, unless the, the data that's coming out from uh, these devices is reliable and dependable, it's very dangerous because it you know, it can trigger emergency response uh, that you may not want to trigger. Or if you're in an industrial setting, you can even do a lot of control of machines. And if that communication is not reliable, uh, that can be dangerous in many ways. Uh, there was a really scary incident recently with uh, someone trying to pollute, add chemicals to Florida's water supply. Um, that's just escalating examples uh, over the last six, seven years. You know, it started with little things like uh, I remember 2006, there was an incident where someone turned on all the tornado sirens in Dallas, I think, uh, because there was no authentication of messages that were the commands to turn on the sirens. Right. Uh, it started with uh, with things like that. And it's escalated into things like, uh, you know, uh, risking our water supply and our power grids and, you know, critical infrastructure. So it's getting scarier and scarier. And uh, my realization uh, over the last several years of being part of such systems is that 
uh, we have a fundamental issue. It is very difficult to tack on things like encryptions uh, and mutual authentication, etc. later. You have to fundamentally design these systems for that. And that's where I think there's a missing gap of tooling. It's not easy to do that. And that's why Occam, Occam's trying to make it easy, as simple as maybe just calling a few function calls and you get a secure connection. That does make it very real, right? When you talk about like, yeah, I remember hearing about the Florida water hack and it's kind of what was happening there. And you also mentioned uh, manufacturing. So I know SCADA systems are something that's often used. And when we talk about these systems that interact with like, you know, opening valves and shutting things. How does Occam relate to SCADA systems? Is it like a separate independent thing or is there integration points? Like, what is that like? There are integration points, but essentially, you know, the traditional security model was all about network boundaries, right? So for the longest time, we've designed security with this idea of network boundaries. So, uh, you know, we'll put firewalls, we'll isolate our network, uh, we'll air gap our network. Industrial systems would always use that word. But the reality is just very different. Let's start with a super simple example. Let's imagine our house, right? So in my house, I have a connected switch from one of the popular connected switch companies. And to that connected switch, if you know the exact HTTP packet to send, if you send it that packet, it'll tell you whether the switch is on or off. If you send it a slightly different packet, it'll turn the switch off or on. And there is no, no authentication of that command. Anyone can send that packet. As long as the packet reaches the switch, it'll do what you need it to do. Right. And traditionally, the idea was that, you know, these kinds of things are isolated. But think about it. Right. In our house, there are there are a hundred, maybe a few more uh, in some cases, connected devices. Uh, that's like managing a little office uh, 10 years ago. Right. It's like, you know, it's 100 computers and you have to be the IT admin of those 100 computers. It's just not tenable. It's not tenable even for me as an expert. It's definitely not tenable for, you know my parents, right? This traditional model of let's secure things with boundaries is not working. I took a very simple, naive home example, but it's not working even in industries, right? For the longest time, the industrial control system guideline has been your industrial control systems, your SCADA systems should be isolated from the internet. They should be air-gapped from the internet. There's a company, Dragos, which does security audits and is called in when there's a big incident in an industrial system. And they published a report this year. They were called in to, seven, uh, to do incident response at 700 industrial sites in, in the last year. All 700 of them had connectivity to the internet when they were not supposed to have it. All 700 of them were compromised because of that connectivity to the internet. And all of them had poor management of credentials, like a default password or a shared password. Like even that Florida water incident was a shared team viewer password among the entire team and a team viewer connection to the internet, which is a natural need, right? If you think about it, like how is someone supposed to do their work in this current environment of, um, of COVID and uh, remote access, et cetera? These are just natural requirements, right? So this traditional advice of let's isolate our things and then they'll, they can be safe is just not working. What do you do then instead? Uh, what you do instead is you authenticate and authorize 
every packet that a machine receives, right? Every message must prove that it came from the right source. Um, it wasn't tampered along the path. And the source that has sent this message is authorized to do the thing it's trying to do. If it's reporting about you know, pressure reading in a wall, this sensor is in fact allowed to report that pressure reading. But wait a minute, is this sensor the sensor the message claims to be? Like if it says it's sensor number 100, can I prove and convince myself that it is in fact sensor number 100, right? These basic things of like authentication, authorization, data integrity guarantees, and maybe in many cases, data confidentiality guarantees are critical and they need to be granular down to the level of every message. And traditionally, systems have just not been built like that. So that needs to change. And there's, a, there's this idea of zero trust in network boundaries. Uh, it's a big buzzword in, in security circles. Yes, we should do that, but how should we do it, right? If you're the builder of a IoT application, how exactly should you build a system that authenticates every device, authorizes every message, and ensures data integrity? That's a really hard problem, and it's almost like a Pandora's box. You start off by saying, okay, I'll do a secure channel, and then it just becomes a really massive, complex problem. And what we're trying to do at Occam is provide a collection of reusable tools and building blocks to solve this set of problems and integrate them, integrate these solutions with traditional systems. So uh, the way we would integrate with SCADA systems is with protocols like OPC UA, et cetera, and we're building add-ons to Occam to enable that. I'm trying to like put together in my mind how it all fits in. Like would, would if somebody's building something, some kind of service and they want to want it to be secure, like you're talking about, are we going to be talking to like an Occam cloud or are we going to be like deploying some kind of like server in our cloud and then we communicate to that with our devices? Or do you install some kind of Occam service on the devices themselves? Like where does it kind of like fit in between like our servers and our actual devices like on the ground? That's a great question. So at its core, Occam is a collection of cryptographic protocols. The, the purpose of all of these protocols, there are several of them in, in the core of Occam, and the purpose of all of these protocols is to establish trust while you're exchanging some information, whether it's between a device and another device or it's between a device and some cloud service. To do that, you need, to, you need some code that runs these protocols. So this code is available currently as two libraries that we're actively developing in our GitHub repo. One is a Rust library, another one is an Elixir library. And so the way you would do it is um, if you're building a device, you would include either the Rust library or the Elixir library into your code to start using these various protocols, which we can dig into. But you need to include the library to start using them, or you could implement a library in another language of your choice if you wanted to, because our specs are open and we're trying to sort of build, do all of this as, as an open project. And then the other side needs to speak the same language, needs to speak the same protocol. Uh, so the other side that you're communicating with also uh, needs to be capable of speaking the Occam protocols. 
by including either the Rust library or the Elixir library. But then there are certain sort of bridging components that we're building. Let's take a regular example. Let's say you have a connected doorbell outside your house, right? And the purpose of the doorbell is to collect video. Uh, when someone comes at your door, it's is to collect video and send it to your phone. And you want this to work even when you know you're away from your house. So if you if you're like in a different country, even uh, this doorbell video should reach your phone. That's an interesting problem. It's very convenient if I can figure out who's at my door. So if you look at the typical design for such a solution, the typical design would be that the doorbell captures the video, maybe some other sensor data like motion sensor, et cetera, captures that data. It sends it to some server in the cloud. My phone also connects to the same server, and that server is then routing the data between the doorbell and my, and my phone. Now, if in this situation, if you think about security, if you follow the current best practices around securing such a system, you would at least implement TLS, right? Uh, but TLS, what type of TLS? The bare minimum someone might do is authenticate the server. And so you're authenticating the server, the doorbell validates that the server can prove a certain trust chain of certificates, um, and then the doorbell sends the data to the server. This data is now encrypted on its path to the server. And then my phone also connect, uses TLS to connect to the server. Um, and so the data is encrypted when it's between the doorbell and the server and between the phone and the server. But it's completely in the clear and manipulatable, capturable, viewable, et cetera, when it's on the server, right? So our use case was me as an individual should be able to see who is outside my door or my family members should be able to see it. But instead, what you get is a system where all my data is potentially compromisable at the server, whether the server is hacked or you know the operator of the server sees an interesting business model in capturing uh, capturing my data, whatever the reason, the server can see the data. They can potentially manipulate the data. So they could selectively not send packets to my phone when a certain specific user comes to my door, right? So all sorts of things could happen along the path. So this violates a fundamental security principle of least privilege, right? Since the 60s, we've known that the system should be built with the principle of least privilege. They should only get as much capabilities as they need. This server just needed to do routing, but it's now suddenly got the capability to store, um, monitor, not only my data, if it's 100,000 doorbells or 1 million doorbells, suddenly they can track movement of a person on a street because they can see every door along the path, right? So this is a fundamentally broken system in my view. And if you look, look at all sorts of IoT applications, it's not just the doorbell, right? It's the connected switch. It's my personal health devices like, uh, you know, weighing scale or a heart rate monitor. All of them currently are built in this way where the servers have way more privilege and capability than they need to have, all they really need to do is route information. And this gets even worse if you're in like an industrial setting where every time a new device is added to an enterprise's network, it increases the vulnerability surface of the enterprise and the proprietary data of the business massively, right? So this is a broken model 
Instead, what we wanted to enable is end-to-end guarantees of encryption and mutual authentication. So with Occam, in that topology of doorbell server phone, you can have an end-to-end encrypted connection between the doorbell and the phone, even though the server is just a router. So that's a fundamentally new approach. It's kind of similar to, you know, if you and I were having a signal chat, the, the server is removed from access to our chats. The same kind of thing can be done in connected systems. So by including Occam in the phone app and Occam in the doorbell, you can suddenly have an end-to-end encrypted connection between the doorbell and the phone or the connected light switch on the phone or an industrial pump and a specific user who should be the only person who has access, remote access to that industrial pump. Hopefully that sheds some light into the kind of architecture we're going after. Yes, it does. So thank you for helping to explain and expound on that. So one of the things that was interesting is like in the Elixir space, a lot of times when we think about IoT, there's a lot of discussion about nerves. Mm-hmm. If I want to run a nerve system, it's like there's a certain level of complexity and size and compute ability that the device needs to have. And what I'm getting from you, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that with the Rust version of the library that could go on the IoT device, I could write my own device driver, device you know, logic in Rust, say, and that could be running on a very low-powered, maybe Arduino or something very small that normally Elixir would not be running on. And is that right? Yes, that's right. But there's, I think, a, a more detail in why we chose Rust. So we started out developing the project in C. In fact, if you look at our code base, there's some um, old version of the C code is still there. We want to go back to it at some point. But we discovered Rust along the path, and we really like some of the properties it provided. If you look at like uh, data from major, you know, C, C++ code bases, I think if I remember these stats correctly, 70% of all bugs in Chrome are memory unsafety related problems. Uh, Mac OS, Mojave, a similar number, 72% or something, uh, vulnerabilities in Mojave were uh, memory unsafety related vulnerabilities. So when you get to low level systems like devices and their firmware, especially if the devices and firmware are doing cryptography, um, memory management and the bugs that it leads to can be a big problem. And what's really nice about Rust is that it allows you to have memory safety without the cost of a virtual machine, right? So because you have memory safety, and, and, you know, the term in the Rust community is these zero-cost abstractions. You can build devices that have low amount of resources, whether it's memory, compute power, et cetera, or, or just like battery power. You know, when, when they have low amount of resources, uh, Rust, because it brings memory safety and at the same time doesn't add massively to the compute costs um, of your system, is a really nice tool. Another interesting thing about Rust is that it has a foreign function interface that follows the C calling convention. So you can have C programs call Rust, and you can have Rust programs call C without massively adding costs and complexity. And that means that we can build a Rust library and interject into the already existing mature embedded system ethos 
and bring a memory safe, easy to use cryptography library that is reliable and gains from all the nice things of Rust. And then you're right, right? Uh, with something like Nerves, you can build that, you can put that in a, you know, a decent size computer. You can put it in a Raspberry Pi, an ARM chip. Uh, you can't put nerves in like small industrial controllers uh, that may be running on battery power. Like, for example, you know, I was involved in building devices that were embedded in the road and needed to run on battery for like 10 years. Right. So those kinds of devices, you can't you can't run something like Beam in. But nerves is an awesome project. I've, I think uh, they really harness some of the really cool capabilities of uh, the Beam, I think. They have a couple of things I like about Nerves is one is the whole build root based Linux system that they create for you. That's a lot of hard work, right? In previous projects, I have built a build root image myself or a Yocto image myself. It's a lot of hard work to build a good or reliable OS image. So Nerves has done a lot of that work and integrated it with the Beam. So it's really easy to get started. And I think Occam and Nerves are complementary projects, right? You could build a device in Nerves and use Occam for the secure communication and management of credentials, et cetera. I think there's some overlap in functionality with things like Nerves Hub, but uh, I think Nerves Hub is fundamentally different approach from what Occam is doing. Nerves Hub is a lot like systems I have seen in the past or other IoT platforms, like you could compare it with capabilities you get from AWS IoT, for example, right? Nerves Hub is like that. It gives you a PKI and allows you to manage uh, device identities, manage software updates, et cetera. But that model, as I was trying to explain earlier in this conversation, that model has some fundamental problems. And with Occam, we're trying to fundamentally change uh, the communication model in IoT systems. Um, and at some point, I hope the Nerves team will get interested in what Occam is doing, maybe integrate Occam into Nerves Hub and, and Nerves. Well, I think it's really interesting that you're approaching this because this isn't necessarily the kind of project that someone's going to casually come up with an idea and say, hey, I, I, I want to you know, build a public key infrastructure and make it so IoT devices can all communicate. You know, it's like a lot of the times, you know, like the ideas I come up with, like, oh, I've got an idea for a website. Right. So I think it's really interesting. But I think it's what kind of impresses me even more is that the idea that you're trying to do this as an open source project and as an open company. And I'm just curious as to what that's been like. Are you getting funding from somewhere? Like what is helping to drive this forward? Do you have clients that you're building systems for that are helping to kind of fund this? What's going on there? Yeah, that's a really good question. So we, uh, me and uh, Occam CEO, Matthew Gregory, uh, we both were like, from the beginning, when we started thinking about this, we believe that the only way to do this correctly is as open source. Um, so I think that's true for all security-centric, cryptography protocol-centric code. Being open source means we can get more eyes on it. We've already been able to get a lot of experts to look at our design and validate it. You know, this is like cryptography experts at various universities. We're also able to use those discussions to integrate some really interesting cryptographic building blocks into the system. Uh, so, for instance, instead of using traditional X4, X509 certificates, we have a, a privacy-preserving anonymous credentials uh, system in our um, 
as one of the protocols in Occam. And we were able to do that because we're an open system and we were able to engage the people who are experts in building that kind of credential system. The benefit of doing something like that is that a traditional X509 certificate, if let's say I sign a certificate that says I was on the Thinking Elixir podcast on a particular date uh, with Mark and, and Kate and David, let's say I signed this certificate, right? Every time someone who has this certificate, when they produce the certificate, all this information included in the certificate is revealed. But in our credential design, which is based on a certain cryptographic signature scheme uh, called BBS+, we can get a certificate that signs 20 attributes from an issuer, all right? So it's the issuer attesting to 20 attributes about a device, maybe the manufacturer. But we can then present a proof of possession of that certificate, which only proves one of those attributes. So imagine going to a bar and only proving that you're above 18 without revealing your name, your address, your exact age even. You're just proving I am above 18 using a cryptographic protocol. So the, the, you know, the bouncer at the bar doesn't get to know where you live. Uh, the same kind of situation in an IoT system, if I'm presenting a credential that I am authorized to operate a machine, doesn't mean that the machine should she see everything about me. These kinds of like privacy-centric IoT systems become feasible with this kind of design. But we were only able to do this because we're an open source project and we can engage the right community, the right people, the right experts from around the world. So from the get-go, we wanted to be an open project with an open core. But at the same time, we're a commercial entity. We're a commercial open source company. And we're trying to build a business, which uh, Matthew Gregory, my co-founder, has a lot of background in. He has been doing commercial open source for over 10 years. Um, and was involved in uh, Heroku and was in a, mic a role at Microsoft, which involved interacting with a lot of open source, commercial open source companies. Uh, so we've thought through and have strong opinions about how to build a business around an open source project. There's an interesting blog post on our, because we're an open source company, a lot of our business strategy is open source. So there's a blog post that details how we think about open source at our company. But yeah, so, you know, the core Cryptographic protocols, the security-centric code, all the, like the core of the engine is all open source. And currently, 100% of the code we've written is open source. But over time, we expect that enterprise things will become closed source and very specialized for a particular customer. Uh, that hasn't started to happen yet, but that's what we expect to happen over time. And then we will charge for offering the open source code as hosted reliable services to enterprises. So for example, a, a very common problem in IoT is your IoT device needs to call some cloud API. The cloud API needs an authentication token to send data to the cloud API. You have 100,000 IoT devices. The cloud APIs says, okay, if you want to call it, somehow deliver 100,000 unique tokens to your 100,000 <laughs> devices. We don't care how you do it. And once you've done that, you can, you can send data. So because this is now such a hard problem, like how do you manage the logistics of delivering tokens securely to 100,000 devices? 
a lot of IoT systems don't do it. And then instead, what they will do is put the same token in all the devices. And that's a massive problem because I, if I possess one device, I can dig out the token and then I can pretend to be your fleet of 100,000 devices to the API. And that's obviously a clearly a big problem, right? So this is a incredibly recurring problem. So what we're doing is we've built a device enrollment service. Uh, the protocol for that is open source, but we plan to, to provide device enrollment as a service, a service that you can scale, uh, integrate into your enterprise APIs. Uh, so we have add-ons. For example, we currently have an add-on for InfluxDB, which is a common data store for a lot of IoT devices. It's also an open source company. So there's a natural sort of uh, collaboration there. With the InfluxDB add-on, we can manage token provisioning, or we call them token leases on tokens inside Influx. So not only can you issue a unique token to all your devices, you can rotate those tokens, you can revoke those tokens, and your tokens aren't long-lived secrets. Instead, they're short-lived access tokens that we manage carefully. So as far as like, how do we make money? We will make money by offering these hosted enterprise-grade services that are built off of the open source code base. And we also have investors. We were lucky enough to have some very future-centric investors put money in us. Future Ventures, which has Steve Jervison and Marianne Senko. Steve is on the board of both SpaceX and Tesla and is a very forward-thinking investor. And the fund is designed to think long-term, unlike like uh, a lot of VC funds that have very short-term focus. Uh, another investor is Okta, the uh, workforce identity business. There we see a very natural fit. You know, Okta is great at managing workforce identity and access control. Occam is great at managing device identity and access control in the physical world. And so we see natural uh, synergy in systems that would leverage, that would take access control policies from the workforce systems and bring them to a physical world. So you could imagine that there would be a policy in some enterprise system that says uh, Mirnal is allowed to access the debug data of this turbine. And this policy is very, you know, or maybe it's more granular. It says all maintenance employees of the California office are allowed to access the debug data of this particular turbine. Right? This kind of policy may be defined in Okta, but may be enforced by Occam in the physical world when someone goes to try and access the debug logs of a turbine. So yeah, so you know, we've got some good investors and we're building an ecosystem of partners like Influx and Okta to integrate with external enterprise systems, and we will eventually charge for um, enterprise-focused services. That's really interesting because I follow the security industry because it's relevant to, you know, computer systems. I have observed a lot of what you've been kind of talking about. Like my home network gets breached because a baby cam is calling home to a Chinese server and there's like no protections. As consumers, we bring these devices into our homes. And like, like you said, much more serious and, and critical is like public infrastructure where we're talking about water systems and things like that that are part of the public good. I think this is a fabulous and ambitious project. I'm pleased to see that you've got a lot of credible security reviewers and partners to help you kind of deliver on this. One of the questions I had 
thinking of security and things is, is there anything currently or in the plan for the future where managing these IoT devices, where I might be able to, you know, have like a deployment of these, you know, say light bulbs, right? And now there's a critical vulnerability that I discovered in my code, and I need to issue firmware updates remotely. Is there anything around that, like signing a firmware and getting upgrades deployed out to like a, a like the, those hundred thousand devices? Yeah, that's a great question and very recurring problem in a lot of IoT systems. Like I said, at, at the core of Occam, we're building a collection of protocols. So the current collection of protocols is we have a end-to-end encrypted secure channel protocol that I talked about briefly earlier that provides end-to-end guarantees of data integrity and confidentiality. Uh, We're able to build this end-to-end encrypted connection using a very lightweight binary routing protocol. So we can say, hey, create a secure channel between a device that is five TCP connections away. You can describe that in the Occam protocol, right? So instead of TLS, which is tightly coupled with the length of your TCP connection, uh, we are decoupled from the transport layer protocols. And there's the Occam routing protocol sits in between the transport layer and the secure channel layer. And what that allows us to build is these end-to-end encrypted channels. That's one protocol in our two protocols in the system, application layer routing and secure channels. Another protocol in the system is around device identity and profiles of device identity. So you might want to issue a device a key, rotate the key, revoke a key, store these keys safely, etc. And so we have a protocol that manages that. It says, okay, this device identity was just established. This is the identifier. This is the public key. Now the device has to meet some policy, has to rotate the key. So here's a proof that this this new key belongs to the same device that had the previous key, right? So we have a signed log of events about a device's identity keys uh, that is managed in that protocol. And then the third key core protocol is that credential exchange protocol that I talked about earlier, which is built on um, these uh, privacy-preserving signature schemes. Now, with this core of protocols, you can build a lot of higher-level protocols. So our Occam enrollment protocol is built using these three primitive building block protocols. To do enrollment, I have to establish a secure channel. I have to issue a key. I have to issue a credential, et cetera, right? Or to manage a lease on a credential, I have to create that token, I have to manage it, package it, deliver it over a secure channel, et cetera, right? So the same building blocks allow you to build these higher level protocols. And firmware update in my mind is another higher level protocol that requires at its base, a secure channel with a already authenticated device. Once you know that that device is on the other end and you have a secure trusted channel so that no one can manipulate your firmware update as it reaches the device, you can then build a firmware update protocol on top of that secure channel that proves the update could carry uh, a proof that you know this update was issued by the right developer or the right manufacturer. Um, the device can authenticate it because that proof is a credential built on the Occam credential exchange protocol. And so the device can authenticate that this is a valid firmware update and then apply the update. So We haven't so far gotten to firmware updates uh, built on top of the core Occam protocols, 
but that would be a great thing for us to take on uh, sometime in the near future or someone in the community to take on if they want to build that and, and need that for their system. I like how you kind of laid out there how Occam provides the base protocols and platform for being able to have that trust. And I think that's really important. And it does make sense that, you know, firmware is might be specific to the device. Like I might not have room on this particular device to store a new firmware image, right? It depends on how I've designed the hardware. It is an interesting topic. I do think it's an important one, as especially as we move forward with IoT going everywhere. We do need the ability to be able to patch stuff. That's really cool, though. It's interesting, right? So there are these recurring problems in all IoT systems that everyone has to solve from scratch, right? Like the enrollment problem Everyone solves that problem from scratch. You know, if your device is being manufactured and you want to provision unique keys, in a previous project, I have built a test fixture that sits at the end of the assembly line and would provision unique cryptographic keys into devices, right? And I recently encountered the security architect of a major speaker company, and he basically described to me the exact system that I had designed earlier in their own company, right? So people solve these problems over and over again. And because these are security-centric, cryptography-centric problems, it's easy to get it wrong in a closed source, I just solve it for my my situation type of design. Instead, if there are, there is a open source project that is implementing these protocols in a way that is audited and looked at by lots of companies that are using such a thing, uh, then we can end up with more robust tools. And that allows us to move up the protocol stack, right? If the firmware update problem is solved for everyone, if there's like a de facto, hey, this is the protocol to use, it's correct, it's been validated, audited, etc., then we can move up to higher level, nicer, more interesting protocols like anonymous credentials, uh, attribute-based access control, There's a lot that we could do if we can get off this rut we currently have of like no IoT system currently is just secure. You know, the the baby example was really like I I saw someone build a connected bassinet recently. Then someone exposed that you could like send it audio things to play that are really scary or whatever. Like it's, it's even scary inside our house to have these things around and they're just not built correctly. But if there was a reusable tool it's not that that company doesn't want to build a good secure system. So they, it's too hard for them, right? So uh, too hard, too complex, too costly. If there was a reusable tool that they could just use, that would not be a problem anymore. And we could build, you could move up to building, you know, autonomous protocols that reason about trust, etc. We can move up the protocol stack. That makes sense. You're right. You know, these people building these systems aren't malicious. They aren't negligent even. Sometimes they just might not know how to do it. But the other aspect is it takes more engineering time, effort to understand it and implement it. And the consumer is not aware of a difference. Why is this one more expensive, this product more expensive than this product? And they might not be able to... It's like, well, this one's more secure. Well, can you actually prove that? It's interesting just because it is. it becomes a financial problem. So I love the idea of saying, you know, if we can just build this and make it open, make it vetted, then it's a whole lot easier. For me, as an Elixir developer, I've got an idea. I want to bring in you know, Elixir systems to do management of a warehouse systems where I'm inter- interacting with belts and conveyors and, and 
like switching elements that are just directing things all around and making it physical. It's like, yeah, I want that to be safe. I want it to be done well. And I don't necessarily know how to do all of that myself. I'm not a PhD in security and, and those types of systems, but I want to be able to account on something that has been vetted that I can use to build that. So I think that's awesome. And I think the security and privacy are starting to become competitive advantages, right? Like look at Apple's marketing strategy currently around their devices. They're heavily talking about security and privacy. And they're not just talking about it. They're fundamentally implementing it. I'll give one example. There's a protocol from Apple called Find My. Uh, which is used to find lost devices. And, you know, you may have come across like Tile Tracker or Android has a similar find your lost device protocol. But if you look at the papers behind these protocols, you notice a very distinct difference. The Apple Find My Protocol allows you to find a lost device without Apple tracking the location of your device at all times. It does that using cryptography. So when, you know, when a device is lost, it transmits a public key that is random to nearby devices. Nearby devices encrypt their location to that public key. And whoever possesses the corresponding private key or derived private key can decrypt that encryption. So I can know the location of my lost device without Apple having a database of my device at all times, not when it's lost, but at all times, versus something like Tile or, you know, or several copies of Tile, whatever the the thing is, they're tracking a database of all our things at all times, right? So this is a fundamental difference, a fundamental competitive advantage that Apple is creating for themselves by building these uh, secure protocols that experts then come out and say, hey, this is the right way to do it, right? This is right now me endorsing Apple's Find My implementation. But there are several examples of that, right? I I think Apple's a great example of how privacy and security are becoming competitive edge. Signal recently is a great example of how, you know, several people moved to Signal because experts said said this is a good end-to-end encrypted messaging system, even though from a lip service standpoint, Facebook also said WhatsApp is an end-to-end encrypted system, right? It's that key type of uh, difference that is emerging, um, which I think will be a big thing even in connected devices around us. Very cool. Well, I think that's probably a good place to kind of close out this discussion. Is there anything else you you want to mention that you feel like we haven't touched on before we close? Absolutely. We are an open source project. And if you're interested in building interesting things in Elixir or Rust, uh, check out the project uh, on GitHub, participate in discussions. Uh, just tell us about your use cases. If you have an IoT use case that is interesting, we, we love to hear about them and um, uh, stories of how they could be more secure. Are you looking for people to jump in and contribute to the code as well? Or are you kind of more looking for feedback as people try to use it? Currently, we're looking for both. Our Elixir code base is, you know, in pretty decent shape at this point. It's not perfect. We haven't published on Hex yet. Uh, That's in our plan over the next few uh, months. It's a great opportunity to contribute to something that is early. It has, um, you know, if you have a messaging systems background, there's a lot of things you could contribute to. Um, if If you're good with Elixir, there's a lot of great things. In Rust, we're building... Using the async await paradigm, we're building almost a tiny actor model framework inside the Occam Rust code base. And so if you're interested in, you know, building actor model implementations, uh, check out our Rust code. But yeah, there's a, a lot of interesting issues 
that you could potentially contribute to. So, you know, if you're interested, I would be very happy to do like a pair programming mentoring session to get you to your first contribution to Occam. So just ping me on Twitter or GitHub. Is there any anywhere else that you would like to direct people to follow announcements or progress or are you online? At Murnal on Twitter and at Occam on Twitter are the best place to sort of follow along uh, with progress. We have a GitHub discussions thing that we're trying to sort of uh, gather a community around to collect ideas. Uh, which boards should we support? Which targets should we support? Which transport protocols should we support? All of those are active discussions on our discussion board in GitHub. And then eventually we plan to wrap our Rust library into language implementations in other languages. Currently, the Elixir code calls the Rust library through NIFs. And over time, we expect that same kind of thing to happen with, you know, there may be a Ruby library and a Python library, et cetera, in the future. So if you're interested in taking Occam to a different language, we're open to those kinds of contributions as well. Well, thank you, Mrinal, for coming on and sharing with us everything that you guys are working on. And I, I really do appreciate that you guys are making the effort to have this be open source and open core, just because I do think it's important. And to get the greatest level of adoption in the community, especially around security as like a platform, like primitives that we can build systems with, it is really important that it be open. So I, I'm super glad to see that that's something that you guys value as well. Well, thank you for having me. It was, it was, uh, it was a pleasure being here and I really enjoyed the conversation. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.